So why don't you take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Do we study the Bible here at Verse by Verse Fellowship? Well, if you're new with us today, that's okay. I'm new too. But I know that as a church, from this church's inception, you have been studying God's Word, and we're going to do that today in 1 Thessalonians. And that'll be our source material. So you might want to bookmark that book in your Bible for the next few months as we work through a series that I'm entitling Kingdom Called. Kingdom Called. And I'll just tell you as we start this morning, I am so excited about what God is going to do in your lives and in my life through the study of God's Word. You're not going to be the same person in a few months after studying this book. Each week, you'll be changed by the truth of God's Word. That's my prayer as we work through this book together. And I want to invite you to pray with me for that, for God to do His transforming work in our lives through the power of His Word. Will you join me in praying for that as we study this book together? Now, some of you might be asking, even as you see that logo on the screen, Kingdom Called, what does that mean? Why did Pastor Tony name the series in 1 Thessalonians by that title? Well, we'll get into that this morning, as well as a few other things. And before we get into the specifics of the book of 1 Thessalonians itself, I want to give you this morning some background for this book, its writing, its original audience. And to help us with that, I want you to just keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians or bookmark it there and turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to toggle back and forth between those two passages today. And here's the context of the book of Acts. In the middle of a difficult and struggling second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul had a vision. And in this vision, a man from Macedonia begged him to come to his country and help his people. So Paul, seeing that vision as from the Lord, decided to go to that region. You can read about this in chapter 16, verse 7. Along with his travel companions, Silas and Timothy, possibly also Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. And after planning a church in Philippi and doing God's work there, work of evangelism, the Apostle Paul and his band of brothers eventually came to the city of Thessalonica, the capital of this region of Macedonia and one of the two largest cities in that region. And they had success in Thessalonica. And they planted a church there. People got saved there. But eventually, a mob broke out and chased Paul and Silas out of the city. So they had to leave. And after being prevented by Satan from returning to Thessalonica, Paul sent his understudy, a man named Timothy, to go check on the church and see how they were doing. He was worried about that church because he left in haste, being pushed out of the city by this mob. Well, after Timothy came back, he gave a glowing report about the church So Timothy sat down, probably in the city of Corinth, and he wrote two letters of encouragement to that church that he planted in Thessalonica. And those are these two books that we know as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in your Bible. And one of the things, one of the things that you'll notice as we study 1st Thessalonians together is that, you know, Paul, he didn't write this book with a 
you know, a gruff and excoriating tone like he does some other books, like the book of Galatians and the book of 1 Corinthians. No, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians as a letter of affirmation and exhortation to the church. And in those letters, especially 1 Thessalonians, the emphasis on Paul's writing is on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's not a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's all about the gospel, this book of 1 Thessalonians, as it celebrates Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you might ask, well, why was that so important to Paul, to emphasize Jesus? Why was Jesus so central to Paul's message and his mission? We'll just see that to answer those questions this morning. Let's look a little more closely at what happened to Paul as he entered into the city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Now, just set the context here. At the end of chapter 16, right before Paul came to Thessalonica, first Paul went to that Macedonian city of Philippi. And it was there that he preached the gospel and planted a church, but Paul actually got pummeled for preaching Christ in Philippi. He got beaten and he got imprisoned, him and Silas both. And I wonder sometimes as as they were in prison together, maybe Silas turned to Paul and said, are you sure about that vision that we were supposed to come here? Because we got a beating for coming here. Yeah, they did. But God even used that to bring about salvation to the Philippian jailer. And God birthed a church there. A woman named Lydia and her household got saved. The first converts joining the church. Then the Philippian jailer and his household got saved. God did this great work through Paul and Silas despite their great suffering. And as they leave, Paul's not, God's not done with Paul yet in Macedonia. Because in chapter 17, verse 1, follow along with me in your Bibles here. It says this, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, These two cities in Macedonia, in between Philippi and Thessalonica, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, let me just show you in a map Paul's second missionary journey. So this is Paul traveling throughout the Roman Empire in places like modern-day Turkey and then modern-day Greece. You can see on this map Jerusalem. You can see on this map as well Paul's departure point from Antioch. And they go all the way up to this area of Macedonia. They go to Philippi, and then they pass through these two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, coming to Thessalonica. In this next map, we can zoom in a little tighter, and you can see how close these cities were to one another, about 100 miles from one another. Goes to Philippi, preaches the gospel there, then comes to Thessalonica. These are the cities that Paul wrote letters to later, the book of Philippians to Philippi, and the books of First and Second Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. And here's what Paul does as he comes to Thessalonica for the first time. It's something that he's done at a lot of different places. He goes into the synagogue. He goes to this place where they have the scriptures, and it says, look at verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom. He's done this before, as he's gone to evangelize people throughout the Roman Empire. And on three Sabbath days, probably not three consecutive Sabbaths, but over a period of time, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Everybody see that in verse two? The Old Testament scriptures. 
He reasoned with them from the scriptures, verse three, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, these are Jews in the synagogue primarily, but there's also some God-fearing Gentiles who would gather at the synagogue that Paul went to see, as was his custom. He went in there and he started telling them, declaring to them the truth about the Messiah, the truth about the Christ, that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. And look at the verbs in verses two and three. Okay, I want to show you this. Look what Paul did. He reasoned with them. Everybody say that in verse two. He reasoned with them. He, and look at verse three, explaining and proving to them. Let me just make an obvious point here. This is not a relativistic, you know, all roads lead to heaven kind of dialogue that Paul's having with them. This is not, you know, your opinion is valid and my opinion is valid, so let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya kind of talk that he was given. He was reasoning with them. He was pleading with them. He was persuading them with all of his apostolic power of persuasion. The Messiah had to suffer and die. That's what Paul is doing right here. And that's what he's done in other places. In Philippi, in Lystra, in Derbe, in Antioch, in Damascus, and all the other cities that he's been already. His first missionary journey, his second missionary journey. Now, here's what Paul probably did. Luke here doesn't tell us which Old Testament scriptures he referenced as he was preaching this. But we know from other places in the book of Acts the kinds of passages that Paul would go to to argue the suffering of the Messiah and the rising from the dead. He would go to a place like Isaiah 53. That was one of Paul's favorite texts from the Old Testament. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Paul probably cited that passage. He probably also used Psalm 2 to describe Christ's authority and to describe Christ's deity. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Paul also used Psalm 16 a lot to explain Christ's resurrection. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Christ rose from the dead. He argued along these lines throughout his missionary stops. That's how Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, here's the great moment of his preaching. Y'all ready for this? Paul's about to declare to this synagogue full of people in Thessalonica the greatest news that they've ever heard. Because he's telling them that the Messiah, as we see from the Old Testament scriptures, had, had to die, had to be raised from the dead. And now he's about to tell them who this Messiah is. Look at verse three. Y'all ready for this? Here's what Paul says. And saying, He's still persuading. He's still preaching. He's still reasoning with him and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Are y'all following this? 
So he's in a room full of Jews. They've been waiting centuries for the Christ. They've been waiting centuries for that promised one from the Old Testament. And now Paul shows up in their city, in their synagogue, and says, Jesus is here. The Messiah has come. All that we have been waiting for is here now. By the way, that word, Messiah, Christ, those words are related. Mashiach is the Hebrew word. Christos is the Greek word. They both refer to the anointed one, the one that the Israelites were waiting for in the Old Testament, the ones that the Jews in that synagogue have been praying for. And Paul says, salvation is here. Jesus is here. The Jesus that we've been waiting, the Christ that we've been waiting for, not only does he need to die and suffer according to the Old Testament, he's already suffered and died for your sins. Put your faith in him, believe in him, and have your sins forgiven. That's the gospel that Paul is preaching right here. And look what happens in verse four. Isn't it great when churches get planted? A church is about to get planted. Like this church got planted four years ago. And some of them, look at verse four. Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I love verse four because it shows the diversity of this original church. That word for leading there is a euphemism for wealthy. So we have wealthy women and we have those who aren't wealthy. We have Jews and we also have Gentiles coming together in the church. We have men and we have women Coming together in this church is being birthed right here in Thessalonica. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Some have embraced what Paul is telling them, that Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Praise God. Go ahead and write this down in your notes. If you have a place to write this down or a pen, I'm going to give you three points from this message today. I'm going to give you three statements about Jesus, and then I'm going to ask you three questions, and then we'll be done. And here's the first point I want to make from the passage. It's that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Mashiach promised in the Old Testament. And here's my question for you, verse by verse fellowship. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Good. So do I. You know, it's remarkable, and I just want us to consider this for a moment. Here we are 2,000 years later, embracing and worshiping Christ just like Christians did in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. Their Jesus is our Jesus. Their faith is our faith. Their Savior is our Savior. Isn't that a marvel? That God's gospel has spread around the world, even here to San Antonio, Texas, Praise God. In fact, as Paul opens up the letter to the Thessalonians, he emphasizes Jesus's Messiahship, his identity as the Christ. That's a central point of focus. Because here's what Paul says. This is the first verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, as he's opening up this letter, he says, Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Christos, Mashiach, the one that they had been waiting for. Grace to you in peace. 
In fact, that word Christ, Christos in Greek, it's used 10 times in 1 Thessalonians in this short little book. Sometimes it's in combination with Jesus, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's just off on its own, Christ, letting you know that Jesus is the Messiah. Those terms are interchangeable there. And as Paul comes to Thessalonica, preaches, Jesus asks the Christ, some believe in him. Some believe in him. Do you believe in him? Some in Thessalonica believe in Jesus. Some don't. Just like San Antonio. Some believe. Some don't. And here's why I point that out. This is where the passage takes a turn. Let's look at verse five with me. Actually, I'll start in verse four. Let me reiterate this. And some of them were persuaded. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And joined Paul and Silas. People getting saved. Don't you love it when people get saved? As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. You preach the gospel. Everybody always gets saved, right? No. Look at verse five. But the Jews were jealous Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. Wow, that's surprising. Actually, it's not that surprising. If you read the book of Acts, this happens a lot. Some receive the gospel, some reject, right? I was talking to Forrest this last Friday night and we were talking about sharing our faith and he's, you know, he even gave me examples. Sometimes I share Christ with people and they get saved, sometimes they do and they, they reject it, they walk away. That's been happening for 2,000 years. That happened, that happened to Paul, you know? Who preaches the gospel better, me or the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul and even he got rejected here. In fact, he got more than rejected. They were looking to take him out. There's an interesting place in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, to some of us, as we preach the gospel, we're the fragrance of life. To others, we're the fragrance of death. To some, we're the fragrance of life. To some, the gospel is the fragrance of death. We remind them of their sin, and they reject it, and they, they condemn themselves because they reject the gospel. And here, I want to say this to you this morning. If you, if you want to be the fragrance of life to somebody... If you want to share the gospel with somebody, you got to risk being the fragrance of death to somebody else. Not everybody's going to get saved that you share the gospel with. Not everybody is going to receive this, this beautiful truth that we embrace. And if you're going to be the fragrance of life to somebody, you're going to have to risk being the fragrance of death to others, just like the Apostle Paul was here. So don't be surprised, verse by verse fellowship, if you share your faith with, with people and they reject you. It happened to Paul. It happened to Paul. Let's see what happens next. Look at verse six. Luke tells us, and when they could not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason. Y'all see that in verse six? Who's Jason? Who's this guy? This is some random guy. And, and, you know, I don't even know who this guy is. Here's what I assume. I assume he's one of the new believers. He just got saved. And, and how is he being rewarded for his new faith in Christ? He's being dragged before the city. You know, 
Jason might be thinking, you know, coming to Jesus, this maybe hasn't worked out great for me. Maybe this faith isn't a good thing. And this guy, Paul, I let him into my house and now they're, they're dragging me off. They dragged Jason, just him. Look at verse six. It's some of the other brothers before the city authorities. Uh-oh. And they were shouting, these men again, you know, Paul and Silas, right? These men who have turned the world upside down here have come here also. And Jason, this guy, this guy in Thessalonica has received them. How dare he show them hospitality? These Christians. Can I just pause for a moment and talk about this guy, Jason? This guy, Jason, you know, by the way, Jason, that's a, it's not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. So he's probably a convert to Judaism and then later to Christ, probably a Gentile in that city. And he, he, he just got saved. He's showing Paul hospitality. He's letting them into his house. And now he's being dragged off before the city. They might remove his head from his neck for his new faith in Christ. I, I wonder, you know, we like to preach in America that, you know, if you, if you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. You know, if you trust Christ, then only good things will happen to you and it'll be a gravy train from here to eternity. I wonder what Jason would have thought of that. But you know, Paul didn't preach that kind of ridiculous prosperity theology that gets preached in our country today. When Paul was preaching the gospel, he was telling them, Jesus died for your sins and you can by faith embrace him as your Lord and Savior. But just so you know, we just got out of Philippi and they threw us in jail for our faith in Christ. So you better count the cost, Thessalonians. And even with that, they embraced Christ and, and some of them suffered immediately. Jason and these other people being dragged before the people. The reason, the reason I emphasize this and point this out is because as we work through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see a lot of places in that book where Paul praises the church for their steadfastness and for their faithfulness through various trials and challenges. I'll just give you some examples of that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, you can read this on the screen or flip there in your Bible. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you got the joy of the Holy Spirit, but you got affliction. Those things can go together, by the way. Affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says also in chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. That was part of his gospel message. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know, Paul says also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Thessalonians, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Can I just say this as an American Christian before you this morning? Bravo, Thessalonians. Bravo. Good for you being faithful to Christ even though you suffered affliction. You think there's something that we could learn from that Thessalonian church this morning in America? Yeah. I think there is. And let me just 
press a little bit further on this verse by verse fellowship. Would you be willing in light of your faith in Christ to receive a beating for your faith? Would you be willing to allow yourself to be dragged even in front of the city officials in San Antonio and be humiliated for your faith in Christ? I want to be like them. And just so you know, there are Christians in our world today that are suffering for their faith in Christ. And we stand with them and we support them. And I guess you might even ask, like, why were the Thessalonians willing to do this? Why were they willing to take a, why didn't they just jettison their faith? Like this Jesus thing isn't working. I'm getting beaten up here. I think they stayed faithful to Christ because they had eyes for eternity and not for just the temporary fringe benefits of your best life now here on this earth. They're thinking about forever and what Jesus has done for them. So of course they're willing to take a beating because Jesus has saved them from their sins. Back to Acts 17 here. So they dragged Jason and the other Christians before the city officials And these rebel rousers, they start shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Verse seven, and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Everybody see that? Uh Uh-oh. Saying that there is another King Jesus and the people in the city authorities wore disturbed when they heard these things. Yeah, I bet they were because they're going to come under the microscope of the Roman empire. If they don't deal with this situation, they got somebody going around saying that there's another King outside of Caesar. Rome's going to start sending the Imperial guard to take care of this matter. And they don't want that brought into this city. By the way, identifying Christ as a king in this day, in this culture, in the Roman Empire, that could get your head removed from your neck. Thousands of Christians in the first century and beyond were killed because they wouldn't bow a knee to Caesar and would only bow a knee to King Jesus. People would pay money and go into coliseums and cheer as wild animals would tear the Christians apart limb by limb. That actually happened. So this, I mean, there's some serious danger here that they're bringing to the fore. Calling Jesus a king, that could get you killed. And, and so let's think about this for a moment. Let's just imagine you're Jason. I give you a little consultation here and say, well, you know, Jason, there's a real easy solution here for you, buddy. Just tell him Jesus isn't really a king, you know? Just, just tell him, you know, Jesus, he's a Messiah. You know, that's a spiritual term. He's not a king. He's not a threat to Caesar. You know, Jesus was born in the backwaters of Israel in Bethlehem. Nobody gets born in Bethlehem. And nobody even knows where that place is. But why be worried about that? Just tell him, just tell these officials, Jesus isn't a king. It's a big misunderstanding. How y'all feel about that? Is that, is that some good consultation? What's the problem with that strategy? Coming up to Jason and telling him, just just tell him Jesus isn't a king. Here's the problem. 
Jesus is a threat to Caesar. Jesus is a king. You know what? Can I say more than that? Jesus is the king of kings. And you know what? These guys speak better than they know. Because Jesus' kingship outlasts Caesar's by about a trillion years. These guys speak better than they know. Jesus is a threat to Caesar. And they don't even realize how big a threat he is. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Here's the second statement I want to make. Jesus is the Christ, but Jesus is also the king. Jesus is the king. Are you part of his kingdom? Are you submitted to his kingship? Verse by verse fellowship. Jesus outlasts this Caesar. Jesus, I mean, how long did the Caesars last? A few centuries? They haven't been around for 1,500 years. We're in this building right now worshiping King Jesus 2,000 years after this. Jesus outlasts all of them. By the way, just, just a historical fact for you. Who was the Caesar at this time when this was happening? Does anybody know who the Caesar was? Want to take a guess who it was? It was Claudius. I had to look it up. We don't even know who it is. It's just a historical nugget. Jesus is a lot more than a historical nugget. And even now, we're in this building, we're gathered as a church to worship King Jesus, aren't we now? So these guys speak better than they know, and they're not even aware of how Jesus' kingship will outlast the Caesars. By the way, there's that term Messiah. You might say, well, Jesus just is a Messiah. That's just a spiritual category. The idea of a Messiah in the Old Testament intimates kingship. Messiahship intimates kingship. And that goes back even to the early days when David was anointed and God spoke about a new King David that would come and would rule over the universe, speaking prophetically of Jesus. By the way, one of the themes in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll talk about throughout this series, is the return of King Jesus. King Jesus is coming back. And so theologically speaking, we can talk about Jesus' kingship already being here. It's inaugurated, but it's not consummated. So, so, there's a time as Jesus returns when he will come and he will reign and he will take his rightful place as ruler of this world. And I'll just tell you, I'm not going to wait till Jesus comes back for him to be the king of my life. I'm going to submit to his kingship right now. And I'm going to get a head start on that. Because Jesus is a king and he's worthy of our worship and our service and our submission as one of his subjects. Well, let's finish this up in Acts 17 and then we'll talk more about Jesus' kingship. Let's look at verse nine with me. So all that hubbub, you know, they drag Jason, all those guys before the, the, the city officials. And here's what happens. Here's in verse nine. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, well, that's, that's kind of anticlimactic, right? That's all that this was about? And this guy, Jason, just... Posts bond or something like that. Puts up something as security in order to stop this riot. And, you know, some people actually think that what happens here is that there's a fine 
where there's a security that's placed. And that part of this agreement that Jason goes into with the city is that Paul and Silas now have to leave the city. So in the next verse, you see that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. By the way, I think they knew where Paul and Silas were the whole time, but they just, you guys stay over there, okay? Don't let the mob get near you. But possibly part of the agreement, as Jason puts up security, is that Paul and Silas have to leave town. And which, you know, that's not a great situation. We've got a baby church, we've got baby Christians, and now their leaders are about to bolt. What's going to happen to that church now that they're gone? pretty precarious. So verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Berea is 50 miles from Thessalonica, not far, just down the road. And look what it says in verse 10. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Y'all see that? (laughs) This is what we call being gluttons for punishment. (laughs) They just got to keep talking about Jesus. They can't stop. And they keep preaching the gospel. And there's some interesting statements about this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Yeah. He also says this in chapter two, verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, we wanted to stay with you, but they forced us out of the city. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, wanted to come to you. But Satan hindered us. Y'all see that? Some scholars have speculated that what Paul's referring to here is that the bond that Jason posted as security with the city officials, if Jason had put his house up as security or all of his financial assets, then possibly Paul's return to the city would have made Jason lose his house, lose the place even where the church was meeting. And so Paul, instead of coming and putting the church in danger, or Jason in danger, or maybe the meeting place for the church, he decided to stay away, and he saw this as the work of Satan keeping him away. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. There was suffering in this church. The church was in a precarious place, and you might wonder, did they survive? Paul was wondering that. In fact, I want to read a longer section from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, where Paul, he talks about his fear and his concern for the church. And, and even as I read this, let's just do this. I want you guys to imagine yourself as Jason or imagine yourself as one of the leading women in Thessalonica that's part of the church. Imagine yourself now hearing from Paul for the first time. And here's what he says. Chapter three, verse one. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, 
We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. I guess Paul and Silas were persona non grata in Thessalonica. They can't go there. So they send Timothy as their spy to check on him. Lay low, Timothy, and go check on them. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, I was afraid that you had abandoned the faith. I I was afraid that when we got kicked out of town, the church was going to falter and you were going to walk away from the Lord because of your suffering. Look at this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Timothy goes, Timothy brings back a good report, and Paul says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The church goes on even though I can't be there. Praise the Lord. What Paul is saying here is essentially what John says in 3 John verse 4. We have no greater joy than to hear that our children are walking in the truth. Our greatest joy, says Paul here, in the midst of affliction, is hearing that you, Thessalonians, are standing fast in the Lord despite your affliction. I'm energized by that, says Paul. I'm comforted by that. All of this talk, even what Paul says here, reminds me of a a situation in history. About 100 years ago, there was something that took place in China called the Boxer Rebellion. And all the missionaries in China were persecuted and pushed out. Missionaries from America and Europe and other places. And actually that happened again right after World War II when the communists took over China. They started persecuting the missionaries. They started pushing out of the country all the missionaries, all the foreign missionaries. And so the American missionaries, some of them even died during this time. They were all concerned about the church in China now that the missionaries were being thrown out. They, they left this church full of thousands of Christians behind. And what happened, you can look this up as a historical fact, later when the communists started letting Westerners come back into the country, the missionaries came back. And wouldn't you know it, that church of thousands of people in China became a church of millions of people. And God was faithful to his church and sustained his church, even though those missionaries were forcibly removed. And Paul says, I see that happening right here in Thessalonica. Can, can God do that? Can God sustain a church like that? Can a church in San Antonio, Texas, that loses its founding pastor who dies from COVID 
a beloved pastor who planted the church, can that church still survive and thrive after he's gone? Can a church in Illinois who loses its pastor of 14 years, faithfully serving and yet called to another pastor, can that church continue and thrive and survive? Yes, it can. Because Jesus Christ is ultimately the senior pastor of the church and the church is his bride and he's going to take care of her. And you might even wonder as you're reading this about the Thessalonians, like, okay, they come to Christ and they get all this suffering. and Why would they stay faithful? Why don't they do something different? Ever since they came to Christ, all it's brought is, is, is suffering into their life. Why not bail on their faith? Why not embrace something more user-friendly than Christianity? Some of y'all ever wonder that? You know, it's hard being a Christian. I should do something easier. Why not be a Buddhist? Nobody ever gets angry at Buddhists. I mean, maybe there was a time in our country that it was you know, socially acceptable to be a Christian. I'm not sure those days exist anymore. So let me ask you verse by verse, why do you do this? Why don't we do something different? Why do the Thessalonians stay faithful to Christ even though they encountered great suffering? Why should we be faithful to Christ in this day when Christianity is inconvenient, maybe passe, according to certain people? Here's why, and I know you know the answer to this. We serve Jesus Christ because he is the king of kings. And he died on a cross to pay for our sins. And we're not about being what's convenient or comfortable or being on the right side of history as our country determines it. We're about serving the king of kings. And by the way, Jesus, let me just say, he's not a political figure. He's not a symbol. He's not just some man. He's not just some carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago that taught some good things. He is the king of the universe. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He's the Messiah. He is the king and we are his subjects. Are we now? And we willingly submit our lives to him and embrace his kingship just like the Thessalonians did 2,000 years ago. And that's what it means to be kingdom called. That's why I'm calling this series Kingdom Called. You submit to Christ's kingship. We all do. Because he's our king. In fact, here's the theme verse for our series. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You have been called into Christ's kingdom and to his glory. What a privilege it is to be submitted to King Jesus. And because we are submitted to him, we are charged. I got charged this morning by the elders. I was sweating bullets over there. So let me charge you in light of this scripture. Paul says, I charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Christ is our king. 
and we're submitted to his kingship. Are you part of his kingdom? Verse by verse. Are you living for him and walking in a manner worthy of him? Are you putting up with affliction, waiting for his return, living a life of holiness in obedience to him? Some of you this morning, you might be saying, I'm trying, Pastor Tony. I'm trying. Yeah, me too. Let's work on this together, can we now? That's why we're the church. And let's continue to grow into what you might say, Pastor Tony, well, what do I do? What do I do? How do I advance this? How do I obey this? How do I live fully submitted to Christ and to his kingdom? Let me give you some advice. You just keep coming back on Sunday morning, okay? And we'll study 1 Thessalonians together and learn how to do this together. One final point. Write this down as number three. So Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. Can I go even higher? Can I give you an even greater term for who Jesus is? Number three, Jesus is the Lord. Kurios in Greek. Jesus is the Lord. Have you surrendered to him? Verse by verse fellowship. Here's how Paul starts chapter one, verse one. I only have time to get through one verse today, okay? <laughs> Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Kurios, the Lord. Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. By the way, there's no grace and there's no peace without the Lord Jesus. That's the only way that we're going to have grace and that's the only way we're going to have peace for eternity. And Paul says, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's who he frames this letter from the beginning with. And, and by the way, this term kurios, Quickly, let me just flesh this out. What is this a reference to? Jesus' lordship. Well, it's a reference to three things. It's a reference to Jesus' ability. It's a reference to Jesus' authority. And it's a reference to Jesus' deity. Let me unpack that. First of all, it's a reference to Jesus' ability. I want you to know that Jesus, when I say he's the king, you know, he's not like you know, the king of England or the queen of England. Like He rules over all the English. Jesus is king of the universe and he rules over everything. And nothing gets done in this world without his authority. Colossians 1, read that. He's the sovereign king of the universe. And this is a reference, kurios, to his ability. It's also a reference to his authority. It's a reference to his authority. Nothing happens in Christ's kingdom without his authority. That's why Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He prays to the Lord Jesus because he knows that the Lord Jesus is the only one that has authority to receive this prayer and answer this prayer. And then also kurios is a reference to Jesus's deity. Some of y'all know this, but if you don't, kurios is the word that the Greek translators used in the Septuagint and the LXX to translate what's called the tetragrammaton, the word for God in the Old Testament, Testament Yahweh. That word Yahweh in Hebrew is used 7,000 plus times in the Hebrew scriptures. And as the Greek translators translated Yahweh, they used this word kurios. And I just want to point out to you that when Paul's talking about kurios, he's talking about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. Y'all with me? I know I'm getting really theological for you, but I think y'all can handle it. We believe in what's called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is Yahweh, and he's referred to Yahweh, and Paul is not mistaken when he calls Jesus Lord in that way. It's a reference to his deity. It's a reference to Christ's deity. And that's just a reminder, by the way, Yahweh is the one that created the universe, Genesis 1 and, 3, 1 and 2, right? So when you come to Christ, this is so significant as you become a Christian to really get this down theologically, because when you become a Christian, when you come to Christ, it's not like, okay, come on, Jesus, join my program for my life. You can be my life coach. Is that what you do with Yahweh of the universe? You don't compartmentalize your life. Like, okay, Jesus, here's your, here's your box. You just stay over here. I got my other box over here. I got another box over here. Here are my idols over here. Jesus, as long as you stay there, we'll be good. Christianity doesn't work that way. Jesus is the Lord, and you submit to his lordship just like you submit to his kingship. Are you submitted to it? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Pastor Gary Thomas, he says this in his book, Seeking the Face of God. He says, Christian health is not defined by how happy we are, how prosperous or healthy we are, or even by how many people we've led to the Lord in the past year. Christian health is ultimately defined by how sincerely we wave our flag of surrender. How healthy are you, Christian? How surrendered are you to the Lord? How healthy are we as a church? Verse by verse fellowship. Some of you might say, even now, Okay, Pastor Tony, 1 Thessalonians, interesting book. Why are we studying this now? Why would you choose this as your first series for your pastorate here? What's your goal for us studying this book together? Well, my goal and my hope is really the same for every sermon series I preach. It's that we, through the scriptures, might be 2 Timothy 3.16, complete and equipped for every good work. That's my prayer for us. But more particularly, if I could address 1 Thessalonians, why this book? My goal is that we surrender fully to the Lord's 
kingship to Christ's kingship to Christ's lordship, that we fully embrace his kingship. First Thessalonians 2.12, here it is again, our theme verse. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what we're going for. We're kingdom called. We want to live lives that are reflective of God's glory, submitted to Jesus's lordship. Some of you might even be asking as we close, like, well, how do I, how do, I do that? What's my first step? You just keep coming back, all right? You just come back next week. And we'll study 1 Thessalonians some more. Pray with me. Jesus, we believe that you are the Christ and the King of Kings. And the Lord, we believe that you are the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God who created the universe. And you, as God, came into this world and took on human flesh and died for our sins. Praise your name, Jesus. And Lord, we want to ask you for help now. As we study this book, help us to receive it, obey it, be hearers and doers of your word. God, help us with that. And Lord, we do testify as a church that you are a king, that you are our king, and we are your loyal subjects, and we give you praise, and we give you honor, and we give you worship in this building. We give you the best that we have to offer, Lord. It's not much, but take our lives. Take our gifts. Take this church. You are the senior pastor of this church, Jesus. This is your church, not mine, not anybody's in this room. Take this church and use it for your glory, we pray. We pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Can we say amen together, church?